This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham, on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, right here on Talk Radio. It has been a momentous few days, and as we enter the third week of the lockdown in Britain, we anxiously await news on several fronts. Prime Minister Boris Johnson was admitted to hospital last night and has been given oxygen in an effort to beat the week-long temperature that he has been running. His partner, Carrie Simmons, has also been suffering with symptoms of the coronavirus, and we can only wish them both well. We'll be bringing you updates with Charlotte Ivers throughout the course of the morning. Uh, As soon as we hear anything, you will also know what's going on. Meanwhile, up in Scotland, the Chief Medical Officer, Catherine Calderwood, was forced to step down yesterday after being caught out ignoring her own public health advice and visiting her second home in Fife from Edinburgh with her entire family. Not once, but twice after the lockdown was established. First Minister Nicola Sturgeon's car crash press conference yesterday defending her now looks like very poor judgment indeed. We have asked Nicola Sturgeon to come on the show. Uh, It remains to be seen whether she will do so. Last night, Her Majesty the Queen united the entire country with pride and hope with her fantastic address to the nation. We'll be discussing that a little bit later on with Boris Johnson. There is so much to talk about today, uh, but we also need to hear from you as well, because of course you are the eyes and ears of the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. So here is the number, 0344 499 1000. There were still lots of people out and about on Saturday, not quite so many out and about on Sunday. There still seems to be a bit of a debate going on in the country about whether it's okay to go for a run, uh, then why is it not okay to go for a picnic? Whether it's okay to walk the dog, but it's not okay to sunbathe. Matt Hancock is warning now that the government could ban outdoor exercising altogether. Uh, There are still those out there, though, who think his instructions to stay home don't apply to them. There are still others who think the lockdown is unnecessary 
necessary. We'll be talking to newspaper columnist Peter Hitchens, who calls himself the only clear voice of opposition to government policy. We shall see why he thinks staying at home isn't the right thing to do. And we'll also be asking him, well, what would you do then? 0344 499 1000. We're going to Hungary later on to see what the government is doing there to stop the coronavirus from spreading. And they're being a little bit more draconian than we are. And we'll hear from the new Shadow Chancellor, Annalise Dodds. Don't forget our homeschooling section at 12.30 as well, where we will be learning how to improve our memories, which is never a bad idea. And as ever, we will be live streaming the show as well. It'll be on YouTube very shortly. Uh, we're just having a couple of teething problems this morning, but do make sure you stay tuned to YouTube, to Facebook and to Twitter uh, when you can watch us as well as listening to us. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. I'm delighted to say that we are now joined uh, by the new Shadow Chancellor of the Exchequer, Annalise Dodds, uh, somebody who we've spoken to many times uh, on this show. Annalise, a very good morning to you and congratulations. Oh, good morning and thank you very much. Did this come as a bit of a bolt from the blue? Because Keir Starmer obviously became the new leader on Saturday and uh, we didn't quite know what his team would look like. We know a lot more now. Um, when did you uh, When did you get asked? Um, well, it, it was obviously after Keir had been elected as the leader of the party and I was really delighted that he was elected as leader of Labour. Um, and it's just such a privilege to have been asked to serve as Shadow Chancellor and, um, you know, really thrilled by the prospect but obviously these are very very difficult times to be assuming such a role and you know really critical that we do everything we can to support people at this difficult time economically. Yes it really is going to be a very busy time for for, for all of us who are still working particularly for you guys uh, who are working with the government. Um, is it a new beginning for the Labour Party now under Keir Starmer as well? Well I think it will be a new beginning in a lot of ways and I think Keir set out his approach over the weekend and said, you know, things do need to change within the Labour Party. I think he's listened very carefully to what the public has said around needing to rebuild trust, um, needing to make sure that we have those difficult conversations with people about where we might have gone wrong, but also, of course, making sure that we really advocate for the policies that people need right now. And you know, I think we're seeing right now just how important it is, for example, to have decent support for our public services because we really rely on them at a moment like this. Yes, and it's uh, uh, it seems that Sakir wants to have a sort of um, a shadow uh, COVID-19 committee, which I assume you will be sitting on as well. When is that the first one of those likely to be? Yes, well, that, that's just being set up now. So we, ha we haven't um, sorted out the exact timing for it, but it's going to be coming up very quickly now, um, particularly now that all the other um, core positions are in place. Um, in the Labour Party leadership now. So hopefully we can be moving ahead with that as quickly as possible because we need to make sure that we have a coordinated response to this national crisis. Yeah, absolutely right. And with Boris Johnson currently in hospital, um, it's difficult to know whether he's going to be the guy that, uh, that is still running the place uh, come the end of today and, and maybe even tomorrow. Um, is Keir talking to uh, Dominic Raab as well or, or how sort of how's the cooperation going at the moment? Well, I think, first of all, Keir quite rightly, and, you know, I would want to uh, as well, Keir has focused on really making it clear that we wish the Prime Minister all the very best. You know, I'm very sorry that he has ended up in this situation and really hope that he makes a full recovery as quickly as possible. And, you know, I'd want to wish his yes. family well. Also, it's obviously a very difficult time for them, as for many families across the country. Um, so I, I hope that he will be, um, a, a, you know, back to normal as soon as possible. Um, uh, and you know, if that if that's not feasible, then obviously we would work with um, with the government uh, th through other mechanisms. But you know, really, our priority 
uh, this morning has been to to just convey our our best wishes, you know, because uh, that, that kind of situation sure. um, obviously must be very difficult indeed for Yes, us. of course. And I, I, I also mm-hmm. wanted to ask you about your kind of, you know, as you now have a new shadow cabinet, will you need to formulate sort of new policies? Do you know as of yet precisely what your kind of approach is going to be to this uh, pandemic? And uh, is it going to be any different from, from the previous shadow cabinet, I guess? Well, certainly from the the economic side, which which I guess would be the area that I obviously that I want to focus on, um, there are a number of critical issues that we've been pushing on over recent weeks, and we'd want to retain that focus. I mean, it's especially important that we do absolutely all we can to keep people in work. That's incredibly important. As soon as people fall out of their current jobs, that immediately creates obviously huge issues for them. You know, if they go on to social security, then that's down to around about 10% of what their income is likely to have been previously. So enormous problems for them, enormous problems for the economy. We pushed for that salary support scheme. Obviously it came forward from government trade unions involved in that as well and businesses. So we really need to make sure that that works as well as the support for uh, self-employment, for example, that government's put in place and other forms of business support. So you know, we want to work uh, constructively with government. Um, where there are problems, we will point them out. And I think particularly around Social Security, also the, the, the fact that many employers aren't using the so-called furloughing process to, to keep people in work, where, where there are issues with that, we will point them out because we just need to make sure that these schemes work. You know, that that's the absolute imperative right now to try and maintain people's living standards as much as possible and keep as many people in employment as we can. And, and just a practical question, are you, uh, I presume you're not all in London at the moment, so you're having to do a lot of things virtually, are you also sort of juggling children and homeschooling and all of that? Yes, yes, quite absolutely, yes. So um, I, I have two, two young children and uh, I have to say so, um, compared to the situation of, of lots of families, you know, I'm very, very lucky. I'm not a single parent, so I'm not having to do all the, the childcare myself. And also, you know, we're lucky to, to live in an ex-council house where there's quite a lot of space. You know, I really feel for families where they're in, you know, quite cramped conditions or overcrowded conditions, and they're having to, to try and potentially do some, some work maybe as well as doing the, the childcare. I think it must be such a challenge, and you know, really pay tribute to them for, for keeping things together. And we can only hope that it won't be for too much longer but of course we'll have to be guided by the the medical evidence in that regard yes of course and Lise Dodds thanks very much indeed let's go back to the phones because uh, we've just heard of course as you heard from Dr Rakiba San Richard Bergen is no longer going to be part of the shadow cabinet uh, but we'll talk about that coming up a little bit later on let's talk to Margaret first up though she's in Hexham hello Margaret hello there Mike how are you doing I'm doing fine how are you yeah very well indeed how's life up in that part of the world um, well, it's lovely, sun shining, um, beautiful part of the world, very lucky to live here. Yes, it is a gorgeous coastline up there as well, yes. isn't it? Yes, Northumberland, best county, it's got everything. It has, absolutely. Now, what uh, do you want to tell me today? Well, um, over 100 years ago, we had the Spanish flu pandemic. Yes. And it was just after the First World War, and people were weak, there was no penicillin, and, and sadly... Many, many people lost their lives. Yes. Um, the, Na- the National Health Service started in about 1948. Mm. Um, what I want to know is why haven't governments since 1948 been better prepared um, for a pandemic such as this? And we're always told to put money away for a rainy day. Mm. Why do- hasn't the government put 
billions away in savings in the inv- in the in, uh, when a, when a pandemic comes yes. along. Why have they been caught on the hop? And they're very um, reactive. Everything is reactive. You know, getting the ventilators, getting the new hospital built. It's all like happening just now. Yes. There should have been massive decades and decades. This, the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. You know, you think back Margaret Thatcher, Harold Wilson, James Callaghan, Tony Blair, Gordon Brown. Why haven't all these governments been prepared for a major pandemic like this? And thousands of people are going to lose their livelihoods. And will the government and the NHS be prepared for the millions of people who will be suffering now with clinical depression, anxiety disorders, panic attacks, OCD and suicidal thoughts? I mean, being locked up for weeks on end... um, is very challenging for, for most people. But if you already have existing mental health problems, it exacerbates um, the condition. And people losing their job, uh, probably losing their home, there will be more divorces. I mean, the, the, the outcome of the shutdown um, will be enormous. I've got sons, grown-up sons, nephews, nieces, Many of my family are, have been furlonged, or whatever it's called. Yes, um, but presumably they're getting paid. Though I think the, the point is, Margaret, I don't think anybody was prepared or could have been prepared for something of this magnitude because if you look around the world, no other country was prepared for it, right? There's a shortage of all sorts of medical equipment worldwide, not just in this country. And I take your point. There was apparently a pandemic exercise that they ran back in 2016, uh, which we heard from Dr Philip Lee about, because, I mean, the thing is, you know as well as I do, Margaret, if in government somebody goes to the Chancellor, in this case it would have been Philip Hammond, to say we need to spend half a billion quid on ventilators for something that hasn't happened yet, he'd have just turned them down and said no way. Uh, but also, I worry if the uh, forecasts have been exaggerated because um, <clears throat> uh, Professor Neil Ferguson um, had, a, had a massive, massive, um, you know, what, I don't know... Initially, it, it was like half a million people were going to die. Mm-hmm. Um, and what if the outcome, I know it's, every death is a tragedy, but what if the outcome something like 6,000? Um, well, they have, they have rejigged that, haven't they? They've now said it's probably more like 20,000. Yes. But what I'm saying is the impact on people's mental health, losing your job, that will impact on a marriage. It'll impact... Sure. Also, there'll be a lot of parents who have mental health problems and they're having to homeschool their children. I mean, the parents need help. Uh, what's being done to help people who have serious health yes. conditions to, to educate their children, to keep their children occupied? And also, people who don't have a big back garden, they're stuck in a flat, like in a box, for weeks and weeks on end. Well, they're not stuck in a box for weeks and weeks on end. They can go out, Margaret. Listen, it's a great call. I'm glad you've made it, but we've got to run because we've got the news to do. People are not stuck in a box. You're allowed to go out for a walk. You're allowed to go out for a run or a cycle ride if you want. Um, If you haven't got any garden space, that is still going on. There are still plenty of people doing that. And I really do think the government are doing their level best to try and protect as many people financially as possible. And that is what the situation is. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk radio. Now let's get straight to it because Peter likes to talk quite a lot and uh, sometimes he doesn't let anybody else listen. So Peter, a very good afternoon to you. Thank you for coming on to the show. Um, can we agree, first of all, some kind of rules of engagement so that we don't talk over each other constantly? Well, probably not. I, I, I imagine you'll talk over me once or twice and I'll talk <laughs> over you. It's in the nature of it is. strong personalities having conversations. It is. Well, let's try and, and do it as cordially as we can, and let's try and not talk over each other if we can possibly avoid Possible, it. Possible, yeah. Well, why don't you set out for us why you think that this government has overstepped the mark and what you think they're doing wrong? Well, I think fundamentally the action has always been, from the very start, disproportionate. It's been based on advice which the government has chosen to take, which is not the only advice it could have taken. I think that the government has gravely underestimated several things. It's gravely underestimated the damage that it is doing to personal liberty. It's gravely un underestimating, and, and this is hugely important, but I put it second because people always accuse me of worrying more about money than about lives, a point I'll come to in a moment. They've gravely underestimated the, the extraordinary damage uh, which shutting down the economy of an advanced nation can do and is doing, and is, as we speak, doing to the lives and livelihoods of, of increasing numbers of people who are losing jobs, losing businesses, suffering wage cuts, and will in future suffer enormous tax rises and cuts in, in their standard of living for many years to come. So I think in general it's a, it's a, it's a mistaken, disproportionate uh, reaction uh, to a problem which I think has almost certainly been overstated in any case and also misstated. Yeah, I mean, I certainly share your views about Mr Niall Ferguson from the Imperial College, you know, who's made bad mistakes before in the past about estimations of things well, during, to, during other crises, you know. But let me just finish this. And But as far as... Let's start with personal liberty. You know, I don't consider it to be an infringement of my personal liberty to be asked to only go out if you absolutely have to, to only go jogging or walking, to not go out and have a picnic if you don't want to have one, and to be able to go to the shops to buy the things that you need. I really don't think that's much of a massive problem. Well, there is a fundamental point here. In, it, England has had a unique form of law and liberty for many centuries, and it's based on this fundamental principle. Everything is legal unless it's specifically prohibited by a law agreed by a free parliament. And this isn't really the case here. Uh, there, there is no real law which backs up what's being done. Uh, there is also, uh, how should I put it, um, a, something servile in being told by the government and by the police when you can leave your home. And I think anybody who doesn't fundamentally bridle at being told that the police can decide when you're entitled to leave your home or not has actually got something wrong with them. Yeah, but th that's really not really what's happening, is it? Up as but, I was, yeah, but that's but as, Peter, as, that's as a, as a free British person. Yeah. But Peter, that's uh, not really it, that's it, not really finds that, it finds that repellent and wrong. All right, well, all right. Now, can you stop for a second so well, I can how respond? You're interrupting me, but sure, I'll stop. Well, please. I mean, you're going to have plenty of time. This is not uh, yeah, Good Morning I, Britain. I, I so. can never count on that. <laughs> well, you can count on it here. Um, here's the thing. It's not that the police are telling you when you can go out and when you can't go out. They're trusting most people to know 
what to do because the whole point of this exercise is not to restrict your liberty. It is to ensure that the NHS does not become overrun. And as far as I can see, that appears to be working. Well, two points there. I think the police have greatly moderated their behaviour since the very important intervention of Lord Sumption, the former Supreme mm -hmm. Court judge last week, uh, who, who quite rightly rebukes the police for being officious and unnecessarily restrictive. Uh, there are also certain points of logic here, which I think people do need to examine. Uh, one has to ask, for instance, just looking at the, at the regulations which have been set forth, why is it that small uh, construction firms can't operate, whereas big ones can? Why is it that supermarkets can open when covered markets can't and, uh, and garden centres can't? Uh, and all kinds of other Ill illogicalities. And the other thing is exactly why it should be that any government minister, such as Michael Gove, could stand up and say, well, I think maybe an hour of exercise is enough, or well, for a lot of people an hour of exercise is not enough. There's then the other fundamental question uh, that, that, that really does need to be examined. First of all, is this action effective? Is there any evidence whatsoever that it is effective? And the answer is no. If you look at all the countries which have experienced COVID-19 outbreaks, from China to South Korea to Hong Kong to Singapore to the United States to, uh, to Latin America to the Netherlands, to France, Spain, Italy, Sweden, Norway and Denmark, you will not find a pattern which suggests that shutting down the economy and restricting personal freedom actually reduces any deaths at all. What's very interesting about looking at all these countries is that none of them uh, show any real consistent pattern between the action taken by government and what happened next. Indeed, people praised uh, Hong Kong and Singapore for their rapid actions, and in both cases, after they took their actions, uh, the coronavirus instances decreased. Yeah. But, the fact but is, I think you're... you're no, hang on, I, this is a vitally important All right, point. well, hurry up then, because right. otherwise we'll run out of time. Hurry up. Uh, I, if, if you'll forgive me, the important <laughs> points can't necessarily be hurried. No, but this is but a I, conversation. I it is not a monologue, Peter. And, and I, I now have to start it again. Although Hong Kong and Singapore were both praised for their effective actions, which had very similar results, they were different actions. OK. So what you, well, can what you let me cannot, answer it now? What you cannot do here is, is either on the basis of correlation or on the basis of causation, say that these actions will actually reduce the number of deaths. Yes, but you see, you've got it completely wrong here, Peter, because the actions which are being taken in this country are not about reducing deaths. They are about reducing a rush of people going into hospitals, which would create more deaths, right? So if you have well, not... They, they, Hang they on a second. No, you can't start that. interrupting me after two seconds. Well, let me finish, sorry. Yeah, let me finish, and you will be able to come back to me. The point about the, the policy that the government is currently pursuing is because of the fact that they can't have a rush of people, patients who need to be given ventilators, who need to be given equipment, which of which there is a world shortage, by the way. All right? That's what they're trying to prevent. They know that these people will probably die. They know that probably, as you've said uh, many times in, in some of your articles, that there are more people who will die anyway of various other things and who would die otherwise. But the point is it's, a, it's the rush that they're trying to prevent rather than the deaths. And I think in that, the evidence that it's working is in that there is no rush. Well, not exactly, no. Uh, it, it, there is no evidence at all of any connection between this policy and that happening. Well, it is happening, uh, it's, it's though. It's purely, it's what the government say they're doing. It's not, you, you can accept what the government tells you if you like, 
But all my long training as a journalist is, is based on the good old Otto von Bismarck slogan, never believe anything until it's been officially denied. <laughs> yes. I don't necessarily believe what the government says. I don't necessarily believe that they know what they're doing. Neither do I. But then I wouldn't well, listen. Case, but then, but hang on. Case, I, but hang on, Peter. That, that, does not, that, does not, that does not qualify you as an expert in anything. It's all very well to be, um, um, you know, a critical person. It's all very well to be cynical about the government. However, this is, I think you would agree with me, at least on this, a very unprecedented situation. No, I wouldn't agree it's unprecedented. Really? If you go back over, over recent years in several European countries, you'll find influenza outbreaks of, of, of similar or greater size, which were barely covered. That's not true. But, well, it is true. No, actually. it isn't. I mean, do, do, you, do, do you know how many people died of, of influenza That's in England? That's not the point. In England, it, 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 in England it, it, alone. The t- I know 17,000 people die of influenza quite regularly in this country on an annual basis. died in the, in, the, in, the, in the season of 2014, but 2015? That, but I have never had to... This is in England alone, yeah. 28,330. Yeah, okay. It's not in size. This event is, is, is quite comparable to a major influenza outbreak, and, and, in, and, and in many countries in Europe, including this, there have been such recent outbreaks. So in size, it's, it's, it's not. Obviously, someone is now going to say, it's possibly you that I've said that coronavirus and flu are the same. Well, I have I've never said that. that. And, 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 and I, and I, I've never said that. Listen, Peter, you are not the, the all-time master. You're not the all-time... Excuse me, wait a second. You are not the all-time master of everything that you survey. You spent most of the morning tweeting some guy in Peru complaining that he hasn't put you on his radio show. Did I? Yes. Well, That's well, why I people kept saying... You, 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 well, the, the other thing is you don't follow, it, you don't follow anybody on Twitter, Peter, so that's why you don't get notifications. This is wasting time. Uh, my point is, is, is in response to your point about experts. Now, as far as I know, uh, Mike, you're not an expert either. No, I don't pretend to be. Exactly, nor do I. And you I, do. You're I, telling I, us. You're telling us the government I, is getting I it wrong. Repeatedly, I repeatedly say over and over again, I am no expert, but the people that I quote... Are experts, and here are some of the people who I quote: Doc, Professor Dr. Susrit Bakhti, an extremely distinguished uh, professor of microbiological medicine at the University of Mainz in Germany, uh, who's who, who is who is warned specifically against the measures that are being taken because of the extreme damage that they do, particularly to the healthy old. Uh, and he's made, he's actually now put this warning in the form of an open letter to Frau Angela Merkel, the, the Chancellor of Germany, because he thinks the policy is so wrong. Uh, you must also, of course, take into account very much here uh, Anders Tegnell, uh, the man in charge of the Swedish government response to coronavirus, who completely disagrees, who was trained here, by the way, in, mm-hmm. in, in British universities, who completely disagrees with the, with the policy. And as, but, as argued, but as you know, Peter... Argued, hang, on, hang on, please don't interrupt. Well, I'm trying not really hard not to, but you've got to stop talking every now and again. Sorry, well, I'm sorry, if I interrupt you... You say, don't do it, and then I stop. If you interrupt me, then you carry on interrupting me. If, if this is to be fair, I have to be able to get a point across. I'm giving you time to do it, Peter, well, but you do have to stop please, talking occasionally. Please give it to me, then, because it's, it's very unusual for anyone in British broadcasting. You have, I, I have to give you credit for this. Thank you. To give me any, any, any time at all to make a point, which I happen to believe badly needs making, which lots of people want to hear being made because at the moment they hear nothing but consensus. And I do want you to... Listen, I do. I was saying, the man in charge of Sweden's very different response disagrees profoundly and thinks that Britain made a mistake by switching to shutting down the economy. What you also must take into account here, and you read the headlines or listen to the headlines on your own radio station, or the the one about Debenhams, which was on the news bulletin preceding this segment of the programme, the number of companies, large and small, 
which are now going into very, very serious problems of, of negative cash flow, and as a result face bankruptcy, closure, uh, unemployment, wage cuts, and the state of the economy in general, which must, as a result of this, already be facing gigantic taxation cuts, the shriveling of pensions, the reduction of social services, the inability to pay the bills of the National Health Service we claim to be defending. It's enormous. And, and these things will have huge damage on human life. And the question has to be, is this the correct strategy? If we just say the government's right, then and if there's no opposition and no discussion, there has never been in the history of man, and this is why we have free societies and why they've always been so successful, there has never been a policy which does not benefit from serious responsible criticism and opposition. That's why we have an official opposition in this country, to make sure this happens. The official opposition in this country has failed to oppose. Yes, well, the official opposition... Can I come in now, please, Most of the media has not debated this either. And you're now giving a, a very rare opportunity for some serious discussion of this. Well, we, we do an awful lot of this, Peter. You should listen to the show more often because we do actually encourage people to have differences of opinion. We do encourage people to come on here and, 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 and argue with me. I'm, I'm absolutely perfectly happy for you to do that. But you also know, as an experienced journalist of long-standing, that you can always find people who will have a particular view. Scientific communities are no different from any others. And I can find you people in Sweden who are scientists who are not sure that what they're doing is going to turn out to be the best way to go. Because what I can say to you, for example, is if you look at what happened in New Orleans recently, they decided to go ahead and have the Mardi Gras, okay? Because apparently, according to the mayor of New Orleans, she took Donald Trump's view that this was not going to be a, a problematic virus. They have now had to pretty much shut down New Orleans and are now talking about it being Hurricane Katrina 2 because so many people are going to be sick. And all the people that went to the Mardi Gras have flown back to their communities in different parts of America and are currently spreading the virus. Are you still there? Where's Peter gone? We've got you back, I think. Um, you have. We have, yeah. for some reason, a very odd gremlin in the system. At 18 minutes it's past 12. Probably that 12, guy in Peru. That's <laughs> probably Lewis in Peru, exactly right. What I, was, I don't know how much of what I said you heard, so I'll just. Quick, no, no, I'm afraid I'll, you I'll, just vanished. Oh, from okay. My life. Well, I will quickly uh, sort of sum summarise it. Basically, what I'm saying is, is that you know, as a, as a seasoned journalist of many years, that you can find scientists who will say all sorts of things. I mean, for example, uh, there's a guy who's the chairman of the Nobel Foundation in Sweden called Professor Carl Henrik Heldin, who called on the government to introduce more stringent containment measures doesn't think that what Sweden are doing is correct. He says we're not testing enough, we're not tracking and we're not isolating enough. And I think the problem for all of us here is that it is a bit of an unknown. I accept your points, right, and you're very well entitled to, to make them and to have them, but what I do say is that not everybody out there is as smart as you are and not everybody out there will take what you're saying as an argument and they will take it instead as permission to go and do whatever they like. And this is a very dangerous virus and it's clearly not acting like anything else, certainly in my lifetime that I've seen, I can remember coming to this country, okay? And so I'm just saying that I think it's too early for us to know whether this is the right thing to do, and I'd rather be safe than sorry. Well, to what extent would you rather be safe than sorry? Well, to the extent I, we I have so this, far. This, has, this is the whole thing has been from the start a matter of proportion. There is no safety whatsoever in crashing an economy. Do you have any idea what effect it will have on the economy to continue to shut it down? Well, I can't imagine because... Do you have any idea of the damage that has already been done? I do. Uh, have you visited small businesses which are still open? to find out near where you live, to find out how they're doing. Yes, of course, that's what I do well, all the time. what's going on? I go to Borough Market on a regular... These people I... are dying. They're, 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 their yes, business but the... is dying. Yes, but hang on, this Peter. Is, this is not just in small business. This is in large business and medium-sized business as well. The economy is taking those tremendous... If this happens, this isn't just a worry about money. 
This is part of the point that uh, Dr. Sushrit Bhakti makes. If you, if you damage your economy, then the lives of, of the healthy become less healthy. How can we afford the National Health Service we're supposed to, we're supposed to love so much if we aren't paying enough tax to, to okay. provide for it? Well, let me... How can we pay that tax if our earnings are all much diminished okay. as they're going to be when this is over? All right, well, let me, example... let me try and answer that for you before you go on, because we've only got about seven minutes left. No, Here's, the thing. Here's the thing. The government has vowed to try and rescue and prop up as many businesses as it can. It has also uh, set aside a massive amount of money for doing so, right? Now, no, it may well right. be that you don't believe that they can do that. It may well be that you doubt that. But I don't doubt it. I think they can do it, and I think they will do it. And I think that, in the end, this is something that none of us have experienced before. So, again, it's impossible to predict bad or good. Well, you may have read a book about the, the great German inflation in the 1920s called When Money Dies. The point is, all those pretty little uh, tokens in your pocket and in your wallet uh, that we use to spend money are based upon nothing but confidence. And if confidence leaves money, then it collapses. And generally, the way in which economics corrects for the spending of money which has no wealth and confidence to back it is in serious inflation. There are other ways that it can happen. What will undoubtedly happen after this will be, uh, and the, 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 you can guarantee this, will be very considerable tax rises. I can't see, for instance, that the 10-year the, the freeze on petrol tax will, will, can continue for a moment longer than this. So everyone's going to find the basic uh, tool of life for a lot of small businesses and, 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 and workers. Uh, the price of petrol itself will rise sharply. The funds which go to sustain the pensions which people hope to live on have shriveled. Uh, savings will be greatly diminished by, by a total lack of interest and, and inflation. Pay is actually being cut in this country on a large scale for the first time since the 1930s. People are actually being confronted by employers with demands for pay cuts. People who've been furloughed now expecting to go back to work may well find there is no work to go back to. This is what the government has achieved by this extraordinarily rash policy. There's, nothing, there's no safety in this policy. It's incredibly dangerous. Well, the effect on health, the effect on the health service, the effect on, on all kinds of things like control of air pollution, water pollution, food quality, uh, the, the quality of housing, all the things which actually supply the health of the people is colossal. OK, well, let me come back to you. I fundamentally disagree with almost all of that because I don't believe that the government is going to let this country fall into rack and ruin in any way, shape or form. Neither will any other... Hang on. Hang on. Neither will any other country of the world. Every other country in the world is in the same boat here. The only place where we can't really know what's going on is China because they don't let anybody know what's going on. And I'm not sure that we can even look at what they've done to contain the virus or what to learn any lessons whatsoever because you can't... Yeah, you can't trust... You can't trust anything that they say. Quite but right. if you look around the world, Peter, almost every country, aside from Sweden and maybe one or two others, is doing... And what, Japan and what, the Netherlands. Which we're, yeah, Japan has a terribly high level of deaths. Uh, uh, the Netherlands, we're not sure about yet. Again, we're still very early on. There are, I mean, I would, I would use this as, a, as an analogy before I ask you the final question. What about the fact that the high street was already on its knees, OK, was already dying? There were lots of industries in this country which were already in quite a bit of trouble. This could effectively be the complete opposite to what you described, and it might actually, when we do come out of this finally, be a sort of boosted economy, boosted by government money. But let me ask you this final question. What would you do then, rather than what this government is doing? Would you keep all the businesses open? Would you, would you run uh, all the airlines around the world uh, as they're not running at the moment? What would you do? Well, you can't, there's no point in running airlines because there are passengers, and, and, and uh, even Sweden is not, is not running airlines. The Sweden, Swedish domestic airlines pretty much stopping flights. What would be the point of that? But I would very much take, uh, take, uh, follow the example of Sweden, which, which has kept a much more open society and has done much less damage 
to its economy. And, uh, I, yeah, but I we don't know how many deaths, deaths are going to be yet. Well, we, we, do, the, the, <laughs> we don't know how many deaths are going to be. We don't know if there's any connection. I keep saying this. We don't know if there's any connection whatsoever between the policy we're following and the number of deaths. And here's another thing which we haven't even discussed. The, the point made by, by Professor John Lee in The Spectator of last week about the, the distinction between deaths from COVID uh, and deaths with COVID. Mm-hmm. Large numbers of people are dying, and they're being classified as COVID deaths, uh, but the, the, they didn't die of COVID. They died with it. And you notice, actually, in many reports, the newspapers are very careful to use the word after contracting COVID rather than because of, because we all know the great fallacy of post-hoc ergo propter hoc saying because A happened after, B happened after A, B happened because of A. It, it not, it's not necessarily so. We are, we are, we are working ourselves in, into a great panic and being, it seems to me, both irrational and rash. And if you think uh, as I say, that crashing an economy is a safe policy, then I'm absolutely amazed. Okay. Uh, and, 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 and we are doing this, and we're, we're pretending we're being safe. This cannot last. This policy is, is already causing grave concern within the government, as you must know. Yes. At the highest level, the cabinet... Are, are but it won't last, though. It's it not going to last. Done because they didn't give proper consideration to what it was when they decided to do it, and they were, were panicked by the, by the Imperial College figures, which, as you and I know, the Imperial College is not the oracle of wisdom in this matter, and there are other people with other views. There are. Uh, been listened to and weren't. There certainly are. Peter, listen, I want to thank you for coming on. We may have to do this again, because there's obviously more to discuss, OK? So if you're willing to, uh, we'll we'll set you up again and maybe talk to you next week, if that's, uh, if that's yeah, possible. We don't have a system crash next time. <laughs> well, we do it at a different time. Because but we can do it via Peru. If, 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 let's, if, if, yeah, absolutely uh, right. That, but that, a Peruvian guy can doubtless help. We'll get the Peruvian that. marching powder out, perhaps, and we'll have no, a party. No, 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 no. Now, no, listen, no, um, I appreciate your time. I thank you, and please don't take anything that I say to you on Twitter seriously, because I see that as a, as a, as a volume of, of as a, a sort of platform for entertainment. Oh, I take everything seriously, Alas. I know you no, do. I have no sense of humour. I know you do. But listen, thank you so much, Peter. We'll talk again. Peter Hitchens there uh, with his views of the world. I don't agree with them, but listen, here's the thing. If you can't have a reasoned and, and uh, honest and open debate with people, uh, then it is the end of the world. It's not actually worth living in. I think I won. Uh, you can decide for yourselves. Uh, you can tell me whether you think I won uh, or whether you think he's right. I don't think he is right. I don't think he's got any answers. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. We are, of course, live streaming on YouTube, on Facebook and on Twitter. And if you miss any of the show, uh, you can always watch it back on any of those platforms. Plus, there's a podcast that goes out every single day. And coming up tomorrow, uh, we will be recording Plank of the Week, uh, which is going to be great fun. Emily Carver uh, is going to be joining us for that uh, as well. And lots of more people to talk to between now and the end of this show. Right now, though, it's time for the homeschooling section, one of my favourite parts of the show, uh, which is rapidly becoming more and more popular. We are actually putting out the clips as we do them uh, over a period of time. So we've got basically two weeks' worth now uh, of things that you can help your children to learn while they're at home and off school. Technically speaking, it's, um, I suppose, Easter holidays now, but we're still going to do it. And today, uh, we're going to talk about your memory with Catherine Loveday, who's a neuropsychologist from the University of Westminster. Catherine, a very good morning to you. Good morning. Thank you very much for joining us. Now, um, I never thought I would be talking about this, actually, as a homeschooling subject, but we are, if nothing else, um, very interested in broadening our horizons. So, so tell us, first of all, um, about um, the memories that we have and, and what memory is. Oh, well, memories are quite complex because it, it involves lots of different things. So it, it includes things like being able to ride a bike or 
play the piano, but it also includes being able to remember what you had for breakfast, remember what you had when you were, you know, when things that you did when you were a child, um, remembering what you've got to do. But I guess in the context of what you're speaking about, it's being able to commit facts and understanding to uh, a place that we can go back to and be able to return to time and time again. Right. And people talk about different parts of the brain, don't they? Like mm -hmm. the frontal cortex and that kind of thing. Is this part of that? Yep, so the, the, actually memory involves lots and lots of different areas of the brain, but two that are particularly important are is an area right in the middle called the hippocampus, yes. which helps us to lay memories down. And the, the prefrontal cortex is, I kind of think of it a bit like a librarian. It sort of controls how we use our memory and what goes in and how we access memory and so on. So both of those are very important areas of the brain for, for remembering. Yeah, because I suppose more interesting for somebody of my age is why you forget so much rather than why you why you remember things yeah. because uh, you know I'll quite often think of somebody's name and then immediately forget mm. it um, and I don't know whether that's just a, a part of being older or whether it's a part of you know I mean I do use my brain reasonably often hopefully that's what some yeah. people say anyway um, but as you get older you you can't recall things as well can you yeah, well, forgetting is really normal thing. Actually, people there are some people who can't forget at all, and it's not a very comfortable place to be. I mean, we need to be able to forget things, and our brain's really good at selecting generally what's important to us and what we need to hang on to and what yeah. isn't. Um, yeah, I've, I mean, yeah, I was saying rather sort of slightly in jest earlier, there's plenty of things in my life that I'd quite like to forget, and I'm quite glad <laughs> I have forgotten them. <laughs> exactly, and we, we, you know, we do that in a really, you know, it's a really functioning, good part of the brain that we do let things go as well. And I guess when you're talking about learning, that's one of the important things is that you have to try and, if the brain thinks something's boring and not relevant, then it just doesn't hang on to it, because why would you? Why would you fill the, the kind of space, your mind, with things that you don't need? So... Actually, that's kind of one of the tricks to, to trying to learn things is to make it seem relevant and important and interesting and enjoyable um, because then we're sort of primed to say, well, that's a good thing. I'm going to hang on to that. That, that. that led to something good last time. Right, exactly. So in terms of teaching yourself how to make your memory better, is that yeah. something you can do? You can certainly get better at being able to hold on to um, key bits of information. And yes, you can improve your memory in lots and lots of different ways. Um, so, uh, so sorts, I mean, actually, it's some really basic stuff, like making sure you get enough sleep sounds really um, trivial, but actually it's really, really important because sleep is when we consolidate a lot of our memories. Right. So getting sleep and, I mean, it's hard at the moment getting enough exercise but you know getting some physical exercise even if it's just um strengthening um you know muscle strengthening things all of those seem to boost memory as well um but then i guess it's about learning in a way that makes us feel that there is a reward at the end of it so so setting goals that are realistic so if you set a goal that's too demanding then people just they kind of zone out and they they can't be bothered anymore mm. because they feel like they're never going to achieve it um, and likewise, if you make it too easy, then we just get bored. Right. So, so we have to find that that real kind of Goldilocks moment of something being challenging enough to sort of push us, but not so hard that we we give up. Right. Because I mean, obviously, they're not actually doing their exams this year. But my, I've got a 15 year old who mm. was who was boning up on his GCSEs, which yeah. he's now not going to yeah. be doing. And I wonder whether there's mm. anything you could say to him as to how to expand his memory in terms of like when yeah. you're revising for an exam, which I was never particularly good at, I must say. Um, is there something, is there any trick to sort of kind of somehow reading something and remembering it better? 
Yeah, there are lots of tricks, actually. It's interesting because my son's in the same position. And mm. I think it's very difficult for, for people who had got to that point and, it's sort of, and now have got no outlet for, for that learning that they've done. So I think it's really important for those people to find some way of doing something else with that knowledge or some feeling that they've kind of come to the end of the journey. But if you are learning for exams and things, then it, I mean, actually, very, very simply, the more we do something, the more likely we are to remember it. So if you think about... Um, the way that I often describe it is if you walk through a big grassy field, the first time you walk through, it's really hard work. But if you keep walking through, you gradually make a path that becomes really, really well-worn. And that's kind of what happens in the brain is that we make connections and those connections get stronger and stronger the more we exercise mm. them. Um, and so simply re repetition helps, but that repetition seems to, um, th those, those pathways are made stronger when uh, there are greater rewards at the end of it or when something, you know, going back to what I was saying earlier, when something is more fun or where it feels like you've got something out of it, right. then, then those connections become strengthened much more easily. Um, and another thing is not repeating things too, too often. So, you know, you almost need to forget it again and then learn it again and then forget it and learn it. So you want to try and have gaps in between the learning episodes. So you learn something, then leave it for a bit and then come back to it and then leave it for slightly longer and come back to it and then leave it for even longer and come back to it. I mean, I find, for example, that I mean, something that they don't do so much now as they used to is learning by rote stuff like the times yeah. tables and all of that. I mean, I still know those in my head, yeah. right? No matter yeah. what anybody asks me in terms of anything up to 12 times 12, um, yeah. you know, I just immediately know the answer. It's not, I don't even have to think about it. And I think yeah. that's, that's a function of, of re repetition, I suppose. But I also find for my own purposes, obviously, I have to have quite a lot of information in my head at any one time. If I write something mm -hmm. down, I find I can remember it a lot easier than if I've just read it. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. So the, the, going back to the rote learning, one of the interesting things about rote learning is that it, it has a rhythm. And that's why we learn things better if we do them rhythmically or um, if we sort of attach them to music or something, because we seem to learn things better when they have a rhythm like that. Right. Um, and, and they become almost earworms. They get stuck. We go round and round them in our head. But you're also right that if we kind of go the other way with it and try to... Um, try to kind of uh, write things down or engage with them in some way, then that's also really, really important. So writing things, it's like if you write a shopping list, you're more likely to remember the shopping list yes. when you get to, even if you didn't take it with you. Right. What about when you come out of the house and you forget something? What's that about? That's a different type of memory. So that's what we would call, call prospective memory. So that's like remembering to post a letter or hand your uh, coursework in if you're a student yeah. or, you know, turn the gas off. It's kind of remembering to do something. And that involves slightly different areas of the brain. It's slightly more dependent on the frontal lobes again. Um, but actually, that is mostly just distraction. It's just mostly attention. So um, that's another big factor in memory is just actually, you know, being present and, and attending yeah. to what you're you're doing so you can do a whole trip somewhere can't you you can walk to work or you can walk to the shops and you almost can't remember it even having done it because right. we've not not been paying any attention we've been in our own world especially if so, it's something you do quite often and quite regularly if you yeah. do you know you take the same route every single day you kind of go did that did i do that did i not I can't yeah. remember you know and again, that's a really great function of the brain is that we can go into autopilot. So autopilot is incredibly useful. And that's another part of our memory system that mm. we, we never even think about is that sort of automatic unconscious memory that we do without even thinking yeah. about it. And it's really efficient. 
But if you're doing it that way, then you're not so likely to remember it consciously. Okay. And in terms of, say, for example, trauma or, or grief mm. or just broken hearts and that kind of thing, I mean, do people remember that with a different part of the brain as well? Because there are people I know who sort of don't want to forget that stuff, even mm. though it's painful, mm. because somehow they think it defines them. Other people yeah. who would quite happily move on. I know that's a very slightly different sort of mm. place we're going here, but what do you reckon? No, that's, there, there's a, a word for that. We call them redemption memories. Uh -huh. And they are, for a lot of people, they offer the light and shade. And if you can't remember the bad stuff, then you, you don't necessarily notice the good stuff in quite the same way. So that contrast is really helpful. And the sense of having um, come out the other side of things, you know, so having achieved something and managed to, to um, yeah, come out the other side and, and, and do okay. So those things are actually quite important for people to, to be able to at least refer back to, even if they don't want to be thinking about them all the time. So we do remember traumatic memories and we find that, you know, when we look at people's important memories over their life, they, they, those are significant to them they do as you say make us who we are mm, i think so well that's been fascinating i really really enjoyed that thank you very much indeed catherine loveday neuropsychologist from the university of westminster talk radio across the uk online on dab and on your smart speaker the independent republic of mike graham on talk radio if you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.